The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today, I'm excited to bring a conversation we recently had with Michael Orlando. Mike Orlando is the current head of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, NCSC. NCSC has a pivotal role in the security clearance vetting process, as well as the United States counterintelligence mission. Mr. Orlando has served in a variety of positions across law enforcement and the intelligence community over the past 25 years, again, in his current role with NCSC. He has a great overview and perspective on both the security clearance and suitability landscape, as well as the counterintelligence threats facing the nation. He joins Clearance Jobs to talk about both. Thanks, Lindy. Thanks for having me on the record today. And thanks, uh, clearancejob.com, for all you do to help communicate all the work we're trying to do in the security and counterintelligence space. Really important mission of what you guys are doing and help getting the word out. I'll talk to you a little bit about who we are for those of you who aren't familiar with the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And then I'll talk about security in the way ahead in 2023. And then I'll talk about counterintelligence in the way ahead in 2023. So for those of you who aren't familiar with us, we are the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, NCSC. We lead both the counterintelligence and security community of the U.S. government. And on the counterintelligence side, that is really about integrating the counterintelligence workforce, setting strategy, doing the threat assessments, and, and working together on, on that side. On the security side, what people may not realize is that the Director of National Intelligence is the security executive for the U.S. government. And NCSC houses that staff, the security staff, to support her in that mission. And we refer to it as the SEC-EA. Really think of it as a policy shop for security. So we do a lot of policy work in the security arena. And then we have some other small missions. We have the National Insider Threat Task Force. We help government agencies build and maintain Insider Threat Task Force. And we also have supply chain risk management. We help the federal acquisition community with counterintelligence, supply chain risk management. And then lastly, we have a group that consults Department of State on construction overseas. We have uh, some really wise people in technical security and we help consult with them. So the first group I like to talk to in the security realm are potential applicants. Some tips that I'd like to kind of give you to help you on your way. So in addition, when you're looking for a job with a security clearance, you know, first go to the website of the organization you're interested in. In addition to looking at those duties, look at the security and suitability requirements for that job. And when you're talking to the recruiter, the security and suitability requirements and suitability goes like hand in hand with security, but sometimes I think it's difficult for people to understand what they are. And one of the better examples for suitability to explain the difference would be drug use. So for security clearance, 
the policy is pretty liberal, but when you get to like a law enforcement organization, such as FBI or DEA, who are part of the intelligence community, it may not be suitable for you to have the same level of previous drug use then for IC agencies, because you may have to testify in court. And so that's where suitability comes in. So it's important that you ask those questions. And then the next thing I would recommend you do is go online and look at the SF-86, the security forms and those questions. There are 13 categories of areas that you have to look at. And I would also say that clearancejobs.com has a, a state of security clearance handout that they've created. Go check that out. You can see the categories of adjudication that seem to trouble people and actually start working on the SF-86 now. There's just a lot of information and you can never start too soon. And then there's the timelines of expectations. So generally, we're seeing secret clearances around 76, 75 days and top secret clearances around 120 or so days. Keep in mind, that's the clearance aspect. There's also the HR onboarding and hiring that goes along with that. Those timelines seem long. They continue to decrease over time, and we expect those timelines to continue to decrease. And then the last thing I'll say before I talk about trusted workforce is just be truthful in the process. Know that we're looking for people of character, but we're not looking for perfection. For our security professionals, where are we and what is this trusted workforce? Because I think at times people are very frustrated with the progress, but I think it's important to note that hey, this came online in, in 2018 as a whole of government effort to reform suitability security clearance for the whole U.S. government. So really think about that. This isn't just one agency writing a policy. This is for the entire U.S. government. And the first thing they did in 2018 was work to reduce the backlog to, to kind of steady the system. The backlogs were up over like 700,000. In over a two-year period, they got them down to a steady state of below 200,000 and getting those timelines down. The second thing they did starting in around 2019 was create this framework, like what is this reform really about? And you may have heard this 1-3-5, which is one policy framework. So combining security and suitability into like one policy framework to the best extent that we can. And then having three investigative tiers versus the five investigative tiers to kind of simplify things. And then the five vetting scenarios of onboarding, transfer of trusts, upgrading clearances. And then now where we are in 2021 and 2022 is what I would call an implementation and transitional phase. So last year in 2022, we released a ton of policies. And although we feel like we did a lot of work, it's important to note that you haven't felt the effect of those policies because they haven't quite been implemented yet. But there was a lot of work from very high level policies to guidelines, to standards. And then in 2023, we are doing additional guidelines, particularly in standards, the national training standards, I think is very important because it really lays out a guidelines for the security workforce on what are those standards and how you implement it. So that will be coming out in 23. And then you should expect the new questionnaire to come out. We are streamlining the SF-86 and the SF-85 into a, I think it's called a personal vetting questionnaire. We've simplified the questions. And then in the last thing is DCSA NBIS, which is the, the system, the computer system. They've been doing a lot of work for years and they're going to continue to make progress in 23. Separate from trusted workforce, but tied to it is we have a small, what we call reciprocity working group. How does one person who has a clearance, let's say at CIA, transfer over to NSA? There's always been some challenges with that. And so we have a working group who are really trying to map out what are those barriers and how can we resolve those things so people can move through government a lot easier. So now moving over to counterintelligence, we recently did in 2022 our CI assessment, which we're required to do every three years, signed by the president. It's a top secret report, but I'm going to give you the unclassified version of it. Basically, more threat actors, more threat vectors going after more things. And so let me break that down for you. 
So as I said in the past, it was a lot about intelligence officers under diplomatic cover targeting government secrets. Well, now where we are today, there are more threat actors. So not only do we have to worry about intelligence officers operating at the embassy stealing secrets, but we have a whole range of asymmetric non-traditional actors, whether it's using cover as students or, or business people, and we're seeing foreign governments use kind of a, a whole of government enterprise of using non-intelligence people to acquire secrets legally and illegally. And we're seeing non-intelligence agencies like the EPA and others being targeted for non-classified information. More importantly, increasingly, we are seeing the private sector, their technology and their data being targeted by foreign governments using intelligence services and a whole range. And in addition to the I would say the high-risk actors of Russia and China, we're seeing kind of the lower threat actors kind of increase their capabilities to be medium threats. So there are more actors on the playing field. Second, the broader targets, as I mentioned, uh, non-secret private sector, but increasingly we are seeing talent, data, and technology really being what foreign governments and intelligence services are going after. And they are using a broader range of tactics. So not only are they using cyber intrusions, illegal cyber intrusions and espionage, but they're using a whole range of legal and quasi-legal techniques, such as mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, talent programs to acquire this technology in a whole of government effort, which really creates a number of challenges for the government and private sector to defend against those things. There are a couple other trends we have observed. We are seeing a lot more collaboration between our adversaries, and that is giving kind of the higher threat adversaries closer geographic situation to us. And at the same time, those higher adversaries are providing capabilities to those lower adversaries, increasing their ability to harm us. And in addition, data, you may have heard that data is the new oil. I don't know that I like that that sentence, but I think the sentiment is right, that data increasingly is becoming an important target. When you get into the conversation of protecting data, it is important. And here's why. We are seeing trends in which emerging technology, such as AI, quantum, biotechnology, autonomous systems, you can keep going on and add, are, are really important. This is the way of the future. Whoever dominates in these industries will really be the global leaders and data often is the underpinning of these technologies and whoever has access to the most data and the most current data certainly has a leg up in artificial intelligence and other things like that so these are the areas kind of the threat picture where we are and this is particularly challenging for the private sector who's really never kind of been under the threat that they are today. I love how you blend these two topics together because they are interrelated. Obviously, clearance jobs, we can tend to err on the side of we're talking about personnel vetting a ton, just because obviously we have so many questions coming in from candidates, but you really can't neglect like the counterintelligence. You bring up how I think our foreign adversaries are constantly kind of trying to pursue us and find different ways. And obviously, social media is a key one now. Do you think you've gotten the message across with that when it comes to the kind of the think before you link campaign? I think those were great initiatives and that really helped get the message out there. I think in the intelligence community, we're able to have great awareness. But then I think once you leave the intelligence community to the federal government, the non-intelligence community, it starts dipping down. And then when you get to the private sector, I think the awareness really isn't there, that we haven't been able to really get the message out in a persistent sort of way. And it's also very nuanced. I've been in counterintelligence for 20 years. I'm sensitized to it. 
But think about people who've never been exposed to counterintelligence. All they know about spying is what they watch into movies. They don't really understand the threat and trying to explain it can be difficult. We certainly want you to be on social media and all the platforms that you want to be on, but you also have to be very careful about who you're dealing with and really kind of think through as you accept a link, who is that person and what do they want for you? And as they ask questions, is this natural? And particularly when you're asked to consult on something for a foreign government, really think through what is this really about? And so I think there's some common sense to it, but at the same time, I think there's more we can do to be educating people on this so they can better protect themselves. We want people to kind of self-report, I see some suspicious and then kind of move on and not engage with the person. And the other thing I want to touch on is the suitability piece, which I think you brought up, which was great. Pros and cons, right? As trust workforce rolls out across the entire federal government workforce, that really opens up your opportunities to educate across the workforce. Suitability is kind of complicated as it is. And you mentioned the reciprocity piece. I think you're correct. It gets complicated fast. So oftentimes suitability overlays on security and then times it veers off. And then in some government agencies, we've noticed security has been asked to do the suitability piece for the HR people. And it gives it a veneer of, well, that was security when in fact, no, it was HR suitability. And that's why I tell people ask about the suitability requirements. The challenge in reciprocity, and one of the things the working group is trying to do is dissect and separate reciprocity issues that are security related and separate the suitability reciprocity issues. And can we put them in uh, like, like categories? So for instance, I mentioned the drug use is the easiest one. Well, DEA and, and FBI are the two and only agencies that have a, a similar drug use. Well, let's make sure we create reciprocity between let's say FBI and DEA on those like suitability things if possible. And so we're really trying to do the groundwork now to separate those things so we can make it a better, easier process to the extent that we can. But I also think it's important, although we're not the suitability executive, suitability is something really hard to do reciprocity on, given that it's mostly about, are you suitable for a specific job and not a broader thing? You may be able to get a clearance and you've had like a mishandling of a computer issue, but you probably shouldn't be the computer guy. Right. So that's where these things kind of get complicated. Well, I want to get some of the questions how China has been systematically acquiring Western technologies, obviously, and not necessarily those just within the NISPOM. So I think that ties into the Safeguarding Science Initiative. But what is NCSD doing or maybe even the broader government doing to address how China is really attacking companies and not necessarily just those who are operating within the NISPOM? Great point. And that's kind of echoing what was in my talking points about the private sector being targeted and much greater than just national security technologies. And so in NCSC, we've done our, our kind of rollout of emerging technologies and the outreach we do, but I can tell you across the intelligence community, particularly with DHS and, and FBI and others who are more at the local level, they do their outreach as well. And they're partnering with companies, trying to help them better protect themselves and taking threat leads from them and educating them at the same time. And I think this is going to be an enduring outreach effort for all of us is to continue to educate. But I will say is when I do outreach to larger groups, two years ago, it was a lot of just entertainment type questions and trying to educate them on threat. Now, companies do know there's a threat and the questions are now becoming, what do I do about it? And I'm noticing the sophistication of the questions are getting better and better. 
So it's a sign to me that people are getting more aware of this and trying to think very thoughtfully about what to do. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Orlando, for joining us on this episode of Security Clearance and Security. I really appreciate your insights and your taking the time to chat with us. Certainly a timely conversation as we saw this week, 5 CFR Part 731 new suitability guidelines are being released. It's almost like Mr. Orlando knew the new guidelines were going to come out. So suitability, a hot topic. Thank you again for joining us and for giving us more information about counterintelligence, security clearance, and suitability across the government. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about is a suitability tidal wave coming? And boy, Lindy, this is a hot topic of late. We've got Trusted Workforce 2.0 and enrolling all federal employees in suitability. I guess I should say federal workers, contractors as well. Federal employees have always been subject to suitability and and contractors as well, but it's a different ballgame now. And I think a lot of people are waking up to this realization that they are subject to the suitability rules and things are getting a little messy for some folks. And we're starting to see a lot of questions, I think, percolate on this. So what's been the biggest surprise for you or the biggest thing that you're seeing on this topic? Yeah, so we've always kind of talked about suitability and the security clearance process. So we know that if you have a security clearance, you've also been a part of some kind of a suitability determination as well for the government agency that you're supporting. And what I've heard is that as Trusted Workforce 2.0 rolls out to even more of the population, what we're going to have is just a much larger population involved in some form of suitability. And I still have a lot of unanswered questions here. And somebody from the government was even like wanted to walk me through this process, but I haven't had that phone call yet. So maybe if that happens, and I'll know a little bit more. But I think there's going to be, in my mind, they say it's going to be better for transfer of trust because that's like the next iteration that we have with Trusted Workforce 2.0, right? We're going to have a reduction in the number of tiers. We're going to have a little bit less discrepancy between, in some cases, what like a high-risk public trust and a secret clearance. What those look like is going to be a little bit more streamlined. Again, as I understand it, a rollout of more folks into continuous vetting, continuous evaluation. That seems to me like a bigger population that's a part of some form of government suitability and that the reciprocity and transfer of trust piece is not necessarily going to get easier. And as we know, like public trust, positions of public trust, which are not the same security clearances, those determinations, in my experience, can take as long or longer than a security clearance determination. And there is not necessarily the same due process afforded for suitability or public trust cases. Now, is that is my understanding of that correct? And that's where I'm always kind of trying to figure out what that looks like and how if we have more folks that are enrolled in some form of suitability, is that going to create bigger issues if you're denied suitability? If that determination is in this system and there's a better system of record keeping, is the suitability denial going to have repercussions in other employment decisions across the government, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. And it's messy and it's very very complicated how this plays out, but I'll give you kind of the quick and dirty on it. As I said earlier, all federal employees and contractors are already subject to suitability requirements. Uh, For contractors, it's usually called a contractor fitness determination or sometimes a contractor suitability determination. That's not new. What is new is, frankly, people's awareness that they are subject to this. And to some extent, the level of 
aggressiveness or assertiveness, I guess, that we're seeing on the part of some federal agencies in how they are viewing things through a suitability lens. So I'll give you some examples. First, to your point, to your question, rather, yes, there is less due process most of the time for suitability determinations. So this is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, If you're denied suitability as a federal employee or federal contractor, it's not a security clearance denial. So a lot of people breathe a huge sigh of relief when they find that out and they realize that they don't have to answer that they've been denied a security clearance on an SF-86. Now, they do have to still list the investigation. So there's a separate question, obviously, on the SF-86 that asks, has a federal agency ever investigated your background? So that would be, you know, yes, they would list the investigation, but they would not have to list that they were denied a clearance. The flip side of that coin is there's a lot less due process most of the time. So there are some federal agencies that do grant appeal rights on a suitability denial. If they do, it's generally just a one-shot written appeal only, and that's it. So an example of that is the Board of Examiners for the Foreign Service. If you are an applicant for the Foreign Service, they toss a lot of people from that process on suitability grounds and you get a one-shot written appeal only. Now, I say most of the time because there are some folks who go through the process at DOD who are contractors at other agencies that have a reciprocity agreement with DOD who get the same level of due process that they would get if they were going through a security clearance adjudication. They would have the opportunity to go before Doha, the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, have a hearing, the whole nine yards. And that is because DOD adjudicates their public trust determinations just the same as they do their security clearance determinations. Then you have this whole other basket of agencies that give no appeal rights, and they basically say, thanks for playing. We're not interested in moving forward with your application, so have a nice day. Examples of places that fall into that category would be NSA, CIA, some other agencies where, you know, whatever it is, isn't enough to deny you a clearance, but they just don't think you're a good fit or there's some little things that they're not comfortable with and they toss you on suitability grounds. There's no appeal and that's the end of the road. So this, as you're probably gathering now, is like all over the place. And I think most people erroneously assume that if they're going to get tossed from the process, it's always like for a security clearance denial. And that's just not the case. So we get a lot of suitability cases that come in our doors. Oftentimes people think it's a security clearance denial and we have to educate them that these are slightly differing processes, different standards, unlike the security clearance process where the adjudicative guidelines kind of lay out potential mitigating factors Suitability denials are governed under the Code of Federal Regulations, which is totally different ball of wax. So it gets very wonky and very complicated. But the bottom line is, I think as more people are becoming aware that they are governed by the suitability rules and as agencies get more aggressive in how they're asserting their prerogatives under those rules, I think we're going to start to see more and more people who are tossed from application process, either as a federal employee or a federal contractor on suitability grounds. And the reason for that is because in most cases there is less due process, it's a lot cheaper and quicker and easier for federal agencies to do that than to give somebody the security clearance due process. Yeah. So that's definitely a question. Do some agencies use suitability as a reason to vet people without 
without really having to vet them, A. And then my second question too is, so suitability is, my understanding is that it differs across agency to agency and there's no requirements for suitability to be the same. It seems like as we're reducing the tiers and with Trust Worker Force 2.0, why can't we have a government-wide suitability determination? Is that a bad idea, a good idea? Is that, I, I'm confused on that. This is, again, where it gets really complicated. I mean, Technically, there are provisions that say that, you know, somebody who has received a favorable adjudication on suitability grounds doesn't need another one to go work at a different agency. But practically speaking, that doesn't really happen. And a lot of agencies find reasons to justify having to do a new investigation on somebody. We see this all the time in the intelligence community. They just flat out take a hard pass on the idea of reciprocity. Uh, most of the time, a lot of these things that are supposed to happen in theory just don't. And because some agencies are just so resistant to the idea of, you know, not doing their own vetting on somebody, it just it just doesn't happen. So that's one part of the problem. There are a lot of people, I would say, who suffer this fate when it comes to suitability who, you know, could probably be saved or could save themselves by a little bit of additional legwork up front. So I think that's also something that's really important to talk about here because the reality is in many cases, people aren't even getting to the background investigation phase, right? Like a lot of people don't understand that when their application goes in the door at a federal agency, whether it's as an employee or a contractor, before the investigation even starts, most of these agencies are doing an initial suitability screen on the SF-86 or the SF-85P itself and saying, is there something on here that we just don't even want to waste our time with? And if that's the case, then the person doesn't even get put into background investigation. That's it. They get a letter saying, you know, thanks for playing. Adios. And that's a tough pill for some people to swallow because they say, hey, yeah, I I know I, I admitted to, you know, past experimental drug use, for example, on my paperwork. But had you asked me some questions, I would have explained to you that, you know, this is all in the rearview mirror. I've got all this corroborating evidence to back that up. And what we have to tell them, sadly, is it's too late in many cases to make that case unless you're being given an appeal, which not all agencies, again, do. And so the reality is with the increasing assertiveness of the suitability process at many agencies, it's becoming more and more important that applicants are utilizing the comment section on the SF-86 or the SF-85P effectively and providing mitigating information where applicable so that somebody who's reviewing this form in the security office, when they see that, for example, there was past drug use, they also see, oh, you know, here's all these, you know, mitigating factors that the person has laid out in the actual form. And so I can be comfortable that there's a good probability they're going to pass background. Therefore, you know, we'll let them continue. It's still confusing to me, Sean. <laughs> I don't think I've ever figured out the ability, but... I get it. It's the story of my life. I mean, I, I'm always baffled at how agencies make a determination that something is suitability versus security because half the time it could go either way. And half the time we see agencies trying to shoehorn in things and claim their suitability when they're actually, you know, there's nothing in the suitability regulations that support that. So I think the bottom line is any employer, whether it's the federal government or elsewhere, is going to find the easiest, cheapest way to get somebody, you know, onboarded. And I think what a lot of agencies are realizing is, unfortunately, 
the security clearance process isn't the cheapest and easiest way to do that. It's to flush them on suitability grounds. I I think as things evolve with Trusted Workforce 2.0, that's something that's going to have to be addressed is, you know, are we giving people a fair shake? Yeah. Well, no, I think suitability determinations are being used to vet people for employment issues and not anything related to suitability is my experience or understanding. And I wish there was a better way to splice out what is a security clearance, what is suitability, and what is just your agency-specific employment requirements. But I guess... Maybe someday. Yeah, we can dream, right? (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.